my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair, it's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. If you get up every morning and dream it, go hard for it. You'll never hear me say I am the most talented reggae artist or dancehall artist. Far from it. I hold my own. And I do my thing unique enough, and I'm probably the most accomplished. But you could have 90% talent and 10% work ethic, and no one will ever know you. You could have 90% work ethic, 10% talent, and be the biggest star in the world. That's what it boils down to. I'm Bob Pittman. Welcome to Math & Magic, where we talk about that magic formula of marketing. We talk to great magicians and great mathematicians, and we have a fantastic magician here today. Blessings. Shaggy. (laughs) You won a Grammy in, was it 1996? 96 was the first one. 1996. Yeah. You won a Grammy in 2019. Yeah. Well, your collaboration with Sting. And that might say it all. How do you do something for that long and keep it going? You know, I took the first Grammy kind of for granted in a way. I won it for Mr. Boombastic. I was the guy that was 
breaking through all the barriers with Oh Carolina. You know, it was the first number one dance hall record in the UK. And I came with Bombastic and followed up. Normally, when a, most dance hall artists, after they get a number one, the follow up is hard, you know. But I stepped up to the plate and I wrote Mr. Bombastic and I delivered it. And it debuted at number one in the British chart, first day out. And it was the first time that was ever done in reggae's history, period. And our good friend, Chris Blackwell. Sure. There was a bidding war when I had O'Carolina in the charts at number one because I was an unsigned act that was number one in the British chart. And Susan Newman, who was a really good friend of his, who was his right hand, her and I had a great relationship. And I really wanted to be signed on Island because that was the home of Bob Marley and Jimmy Cliff and all my, all my heroes. But I'm driving in a car with my then manager going to sign a deal memo, I think, if I can recall properly. And I got a call from a, uh, a gentleman by the name of Ken Berry. That time, I think he was the chairman of Virgin Records, and he offered me a million pounds. And that time, it was unheard of in reggae music for an artist to get that kind of money. And so we stopped the car, and I said, wow, you know, I have a great relationship with Chris and Suzette, but I might need to go hear what this guy has to say. So I turned the car and went back to Virgin. We met with him the same day. And I said, wow, big office. And he says, yes, matches my ego and my offer. <laughs> <laughs> And I called Chris Blackwell at that time to see if he would match it. And he said, too rich for me. I've never paid for that much for a reggae artist, and I'm, I'm not about to now. And we debuted at number one with Mr. Bombastic. Ken Berry says, it's funny Chris would say that. I made my million back just on old Carolina, <laughs> which, which was kind of weird to me. It was like, wow. Years after, I was at Golden Nine, and Chris and I were, were joking about it because we're still good friends to this day. And he said, Shaggy... Was it something I said? I said, maybe it was what you didn't say. <laughs> but I took the whole Grammy thing for like granted. And I was nominated, I think, seven times after that and never got it. I was always beaten either by somebody who was a Marley or something or something. Just always lost. So after a while, I was like, wow, I wonder if I'm really going to get back one. And then I did this project, which I really didn't think I was going to get a Grammy for this project because it was kind of out of nowhere. It's kind of weird. Staying shaggy, people ask a question like, what is this? And go figure. Here we are, you know? A Jamaican in New York. A Jamaican in New York, right. Well, you were born in Kingston? Born and raised in Kingston, still live. At 18, you moved in with your mom in Brooklyn? Mm-hmm. Joined the Marines? Went to war? Yeah. And then all this other stuff goes. We're going to connect the dots in a minute, but yeah. first, mm-hmm. you in 60 seconds. Okay. You don't mind the test, do you? Go ahead. Okay, we got to go. Okay, here we go. Knock it out. Cats or dogs? Cats. Beach or mountains? Beach, definitely. Beer, wine, or tequila? Tequila, definitely. Tequila (laughs) tequila or rum? Still tequila. I've got to like that. Boats or planes? I'm a boat guy. Sunrise or sunsets? Sunrise. Brooklyn or Kingston? Kingston, definitely. Bob Marley or James Brown? Ooh, that's a tough one. That's a tough one because... I've never met Bob Marley, and he's always been my hero, but I've met James Brown, and he was such a a huge fan and a huge inspiration to me. I'll have to tie on that one. Okay, we'll give you a tie. What's your favorite city to tour? Africa. The whole continent of Africa. Uganda is cool. Kenya, Ghana. I just love touring there because you get these massive crowds. It's like the whole country comes out. Secret talent. I could draw. Food you'd never eat. Food I'd never eat. You'd never eat. And things that smell bad. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not good with food. It doesn't smell nice. Most musical person you know except you? Sting. Childhood hero? 
my mother. Worst fad you participated in? I think breakdancing was kind of weird for me because <laughs> I was awkward at it. <laughs> Best poolside drink? Coconut water. What did you think you wanted to be when you were growing up? Fireman. As I got older, even when I was doing singing, I always looked at Hugh Hefner's job and say, hey, that would be a cool job. <laughs> <laughs> Best performer you watched? Michael Jackson. What topic can you talk about forever? Love. Ooh. Yeah. It's a good way to end that. Okay. That's mm-hmm. the quiz. That's now the let's quiz. get into it. All right. Cool. I've got a place in Jamaica. You and I met there. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many years ago. Yeah. Many, many yeah, years many, ago. Many, yeah. You give master tours of Kingston. I was the beneficiary of it, except when that pit bull almost ate me alive. You, when you was trying to talk to. Well, I was trying to talk to the <laughs> pit bull. <laughs> so is Jamaica where your heart is? 100%. And how do you think it shapes who you are and your I think, music? I think it's everything. Jamaica is where the root of it is and where the energy comes from and the drive because I am the first at many things in dance hall and reggae. And I'm big on people telling me I can't do it and I have to prove them wrong. I'm big on that. It's like a fire lit onto me when they try to tell me that I can't. Do you think Jamaica gives you that backbone? Yes, yes. Imagine doing a dancehall record in 1993 and trying to get it played on popular radio. To this day, there's still not a reggae formula or a format for reggae music. There's a format for hip-hop. There's a format for R&B, rock, pop, whatever it is. There is no format for reggae. But yet still, this art form has now become somewhat of the sound of popular music now, from the Rihannas to the Justin Bieber's to whatever it is. Go back to staying in the police. And even Sting and the Police, when they started, the police were the first white reggae band. And they were part of the gate opening because reggae bands at the time could not be played on major radio stations. Unfortunately, because most of the time because they were black, you know. And these guys or some white guys were playing a hybrid version of it that got on mainstream radio. And so now the real reggae guys like the Steel Pulse and the Aswads and these guys could basically come in and say, hey, what are you talking about? You playing those guys? What do you think they're playing? You know, and Sting was gracious enough to always support them, pay homage to them. And this is kind of what we did with this project going back. So let's talk a little bit about, we're on the subject of Jamaica, mm-hmm. longevity. I mean, the very few people in the music business have the kind of longevity, staying power, eternal appeal you do. Where do you think that comes from? Is that related to Jamaica? Do you go back there for nourishment and come back into the world? You know what, Bob? When I came out with O'Carolina... It was a cover of the Folk Brothers, Oh Carolina. And I covered it, but I also put my twist to it. It was such a massive number one around the world that they labeled me a one-hit wonder. And it was the big headlines in almost every British tabloid. Kind of why I think probably Chris didn't come to the table. (laughs) (laughs) But we ended up lasting this long. And I think I am the guy that no one ever saw coming at all. And I'm still today the guy that no one sees coming. So Jamaica does have a lot to do with that because I somehow have a love-hate relationship with being the underdog. I kind of like to be the underdog because when you win, it feels better. I kind of hate being the underdog because the journey's harder. But my grandmother always says, nothing good in life is easy. You and I both know a lot of people who Mm -hmm. started out very humble, nice, and they unleashed a monster when they became stars. It seems like the bigger you are, the harder you work. 
you're one of those guys that's working as if this is your first record and your first time out every time. And what in your background gave you that? I came from nothing. I consider myself the luckiest human being on earth. Nothing I take for granted. Nothing. Every single time I get up, I feel like, wow, I survived the war. I come from a from Raytown in Jamaica. There's no one in my family that has ever gone to college. I'm putting somebody in college, a few in college now. I was the first to be married. I was the first to kind of engage in, in family. I was a dreamer. Very, very fortunate. And I don't take anything for granted. So Shaggy, how did you get the name Shaggy? And at what age? It's probably, probably around 13, 14. I was a skinny guy totally skinny guy with a lot of hair and my hair was really really light so they said i look like shaggy from scooby-doo and they call me shaggy i hated the name shaggy dog shaggy dog shaggy dog it was a tease i left jamaica came to america and everybody started calling me rich and i was like oh god that's great and then i'm running some jamaican on flatbush it was like yo shaggy yo what am i you and i was like Who's that? Do I know you? Yeah, they, then all my <laughs> friends around me. Oh, Shaggy. And then it, it just clicked to them. But I went to England after Old Carolina. I was in a car being picked up at the airport from the record company guy. And Old Carolina came on on the radio, on Radio 1. And the DJ was like, oh, I can't believe I'm playing a record from a blood by the name of Shaggy. <laughs> it was making a big deal out of it. I said, why? What, what's, what's the big deal? He says, oh, you don't know what Shag mean? I'm like, no. And he explained it to me. I'm like, ah. All of a sudden, my name was the coolest name I ever had. <laughs> so that's what I tell the chicks these days. Hey, how'd you get your name? Hey, I'm a Shagwell. Shaggy. <laughs> you never had a van, did you, like uh, Shaggy? No, no, no. I toured in a van in Europe, though. It wasn't the mystery machine. <laughs> There's much mystery going on there. <laughs> Let's take a step back. Mm-hmm. Why did you join the Marines? I was in Flatbush at the time, and it was Flatbush in the real Flatbush sense, not gentrified Flatbush as it is now. Heavy West Indian area. At that time, I went to Erasmus Hall. It was an academy of the arts at the time. So I, I excelled in the arts, acting, music I was good at, art and design I was good at. But I lived with my mother at the time, and all my friends were just doing everything that was wrong. I was on Clarkson and Nostrand. I was selling weed, coke, everything that was bad, hanging with everybody that was bad. But I'm also smart enough, Bob, to know that if somebody's walking and they step in a hole and break their leg, common sense, if I'm walking behind them, step over it. So it didn't take long for a couple of my friends to be getting locked up. And I decided, hey, you know, this ain't me. I remember it's a Tuesday, I think. I walked down to Flatbush Junction. I walked in a recruiting office. And I stepped in and there was some posters. One was the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, and the Marines. And I stepped over to the Marine uniform. I was like, that looked like something I could get laid in. Because <laughs> at that time, at that age, it's all, it was all about women. And I asked the guy, I said, I want to get into this. And he was like, uh, you know, asked me my age. And he says, you know, I have to take a test. And I took the test. And he's like, well, I could get you out of here next month. And I was like, no, I need to get out of here by Friday. And I told the recruiter, I said, if I'm not doing it by Friday, I'm not doing it at all. And he says, hold up. And he went to this other guy. And I guess they kind of swapped. And, you know, I ended up leaving like the following week, Friday or something like that. And I went into the military. And at that time, when I stepped on the yellow footprints and there's guys screaming in my face, I was like, what have I got myself into? <laughs> but I really just did it just to get off the streets. What did you learn from the military? That was my biggest teaching, I should say. 
that experience. I started out in a platoon of I think at about maybe 100, 120 or something like that, or 100, can't remember. We graduated at about 30 or 40. Ooh. The amount of people that dropped out. And I think it was like 13 weeks in basic training. And these guys were screaming in your face. I almost didn't make it funny enough because I couldn't swim. <laughs> From Jamaica. <laughs> From Jamaica. From Jamaica. And it was a running joke. With Can all, you swim now? I can now. Okay. But it was a running joke from all the drill instructors. Ah, oh, Jamaica boy, you can't swim. How you from Jamaica can't swim? Can you roll it up and smoke it? You know, and they kept just haggling me, haggling me all the time. And I would drive to New York City every single weekend, which is considered AWOL, just to do music. So I drove nine hours to nine hours from just to make records. And so it'd be 18 hours every weekend and I would sometime come back late and I would get AWOL. There was a Colonel, Colonel Evans, was a Jamaican attache. He was my CEO. And he always tried to look out for me. Once he left, there was another colonel in charge. And I got bit. And I would do it every weekend. Actually, I voiced O'Caroline at the INS studio in my full uniform. Wow. So I used to wear the uniform because I wouldn't get stopped on the highway. Really? I didn't know that. So thing. Yeah. Whenever the state trooper pulls you over, if you're in your uniform, they're ex-military too. It's like, okay, guys, slow down. You, know? you actually got shipped out to mm -hmm. the first Gulf War, right? Mm-hmm. And how did that affect you? I mean, did you actually see battle? Were you in the middle yes. of it? Yes, yes. You know what? People do 20 years in the military and never see war. I do four and I'm caught up in the desert storm. It was a learning experience for me too because it made me appreciate a lot of things. It's funny what you appreciate, the simple things in life, friendship, your mother's cooking, a warm bed, when you're in the middle of a fighting field with none of that. And it did a lot for me for race. There was a gentleman I was guarding a 50 cal with in uh, Saudi Arabia. And he was a white guy. And he was explaining to me that when we came to the military, it was the first time he saw a black man or met one. And he had explained to me his lifestyle and his parents. And so I would say racism is taught because here's a guy that I'm having a conversation with. And him and I became friends. And now it's him watching my back. I'm watching his back. And we're guarding a 50 cal. And so how did you get Marines to musician? I did it because, well, you know, I was in Erasmus Hall and there were little cliques in the lunchroom. This like, is in Brooklyn? In Brooklyn. So you had the Haitian clique, the Trini clique, the Jamaican clique, you know. And in the Jamaican clique, I was the guy that could spit rhymes and they would beat the bench. I'm Mr. Lobade, so you know they would play as I sing with them, you know, my love, my lunch thing. I mean, just I'll say all these rhymes. And I was really, really good at it. I'll look at your shirt, your pants, your shoes, whatever it is. And but I realized when I did that, I got attention. And I realized when I did that, I got chicks. <laughs> Lots of girls. And they were all, you know, they always wanted me to talk about their hair and their shoe and all that. And as I went along, somebody heard me, a guy called Kingsley, and I said, I'm going to take you over to a place. And they brought me to a place called Gibraltar Sound System. And I ended up spitting some, some lyrics tonight with a couple of guys, you know, just battling and trading rhymes. And they took me to a studio called Don Juan Studio in Brooklyn, and I cut a record. And then they introduced me to another guy called Sting International, and I cut another record. And after that, I was doing a circuit, started making a reputation for myself, and one of those songs became a hit. And then another one, and another one. Then after a while, I had 
these ghetto fabulous songs, these underground songs. And now I was getting to every club for free. I drank for free and I left with the prettiest chick. I'm like, I'm on cloud nine. You know, I lived in Bedford-Stuyvesant at this time, little apartment there in Madison between Lewis and Marcus Garvey. I had a great time. Not a war is in the world. And one of those songs I wrote while I was in the military too was Oh Carolina. It was licensed to Greensleeve in England and they had major distribution through BMG and it just took off like, like crazy. And at that time I was doing background for Maxi Priest. So the universe just kind of somehow put me with Maxi and I went out with Maxi for 500 bucks a week touring with him and he taught me how to do interviews and taught me how to speak properly and taught me what, how to perform. Mentor. Yes, kind of a mentor. And there were good things he did and bad things he did. Some of the bad things I looked at, I was like, okay, you know, but it, it was a big learning process for me. So this is math and magic. It's really a podcast for marketers. Shaggy is a big brand. Mm-hmm. Do you consciously think about managing that brand? What's shaggy and what's not shaggy and what you can do and can't do? Yes. And how do you think yes. about brand shaggy? I am a direct representative of brand Jamaica. I look at it like that. Everything about brand Jamaica comes with a cool factor. I was offered to do, I think was Dancing with a Star or one of them things, some management I had was bringing to me and I refused. And, you know, they were like, oh, what are you doing? And you're, you're being difficult. And I'm like, nah, can you imagine me, shaggy, iconic guy out of Jamaica dancing around in tights? Nah, it's not going to happen, bro. You know what I mean? But I find now with brand shaggies, there's a lot of people that don't know a lot about me and what I am. They know Mr. Boombastic. They know Love Me, Love Me, know Angel. Some of these songs are very cheeky and some of them are somewhat novelty. And they think that's the basis of what you are. They know it wasn't me. But there was also 10 million people or so that bought Hot Shot and realized there was a lot of depth within that album. I'm a guy that's, I'm guinea pig at it. You know, I'm not the guy that choose characters who are good for me bad management, people with not much vision, people with low self-esteem, people. It's just part of my journey. I'm not mad at any of it because I learned from every single one of it and it's made me a stronger person today. And I, I actually do think my best years are ahead of me. Funny enough. And you've got a brand that has worked for a number of generations. Yes. There's probably the people in the mid-90s thought of you as one thing. Mm-hmm. People today probably think of you as something else. Or know you for something else? How do well, you tie all that together? Well, it is crazy in a sense because I used to be at Rocket Studio up here. And I, Puffy at the time, was he was at Uptown Records and he was an intern. So I'm in the time with Joe to see Heavy D was a really good friend. He was Jamaican. So I'm, I'm from that era. So I saw when Jay-Z got here. I, I remember being on the road when Beyonce and Destiny's Child, we were doing radio together. You know, I, I remember when NSYNC, was opening for Shaggy, you know, and Spice Girl was opening for Shaggy in, in Europe when we had Mr. Boombastic was the biggest thing and they were just coming up. I remember all of that. The other day I was having a conversation. We were talking about Jodeci. I was like, yeah, man, Jodeci was what? And then the kid that was with me, I guess he was probably around 2021. 20, like, who's Jodeci? And our manager looks at me and says, do you realize what this is? He doesn't know who Jodeci is, but he knows who Shaggy is. Isn't that crazy? And to have lasted this long, and I'm having the biggest year in reggae for me, just winning a Grammy, best-selling reggae album, best-selling tour, one of the best-selling tour, number four 
most successful tour for the year. At 50. You're just a baby. You know, Bob, that's why I like talking to you, man. <laughs> Always have older friends. It's, it works like a charm. Just hold on a second because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my from this idea of what do, is that? Is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know. Okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. We're here with Shaggy. You've traveled a whole lot. Mm -hmm. We were talking about that, too. 
how do you balance that with the family? And what influence does that have on you? My partner is the hold it down person and the person that mops up and out the fires and do all of that. You really got to give credit where that is due, man. That's a lot. Because I am the guy that's always gone. But to manage that family situation, you really have to give and take. I would say, when this is over with and I go home, your feelings get hit sometimes because things goes on without you. And it is tough. And you get into arguments and you get into fights. And you kind of have to weather through it. But I like at the end of the day when I look at it, I'm like, wow, this is what I've done. This is great. Beautiful home, beautiful life, beautiful wife. This is great. Quite an arc. Yeah. What's your process for making the music? I mean, how does it start? Where does this idea come from and how does it turn into something? I don't like to follow the trend of things. If you look at the history of my songs, we know Carolina came out in 1993. There was nothing in radio that sounded like it. When Mr. Bombastic came out, you were like, what the? What is this? But it was good. When I came with It Wasn't Me, we were in InSync and Britney Spears mode. Radio was like, what? What is this? So I've always maintained that because that's what excites me is coming with that lift feel thing that is disruptive, an ear grabber. Like, what is this? And it's a balancing act because you can't be too left feel to where radio is like, oh, well, how does this work? It has to be a balance. And it's finding that right balance that works. And it, it's a gut instinct of me feeling like, oh, yeah, this is great. Do you think about it to get there or does it just pop in your head? Sometimes I think about it. i give you a, a, a quick example. I was doing pop music and I was doing very well at it. But I wasn't getting any respect in Jamaica for dancehall. And I started a dancehall. So it started to bother me. And I wanted to come back and get a dancehall hit. And it had to be a big one. And I thought about it, I thought about it, and I took every record that's doing well and I listened to them. Elephant Man was doing this Ponder River dance stuff. And then there was, Auntie Killer was doing the hardcore gun stuff. And I was like, how do I fit in? I'm not the dancing guy, that's not Shaggy. I'm not the gun talking guy, that's not me either. I went to a party in, in Brooklyn with a friend and a young lady was with me. And she brought a bag with a dress. So we did the party. And she went into the bathroom and she changed into another dress. This was daylight coming up now. And she says, can you drop me to church? I mean, we just covered from a dance, hardcore reggae dance in Brooklyn. We drove into the church. I dropped her off. I couldn't get out of my head. She just flipped from being this girl that was cocking up in a batirada, you know, doing all the nastiest dances. And she put a dress on and a hat and she was at church. It was that simple. And then the idea came to me for a song called Church Eden. I wanted it to sound different. I wanted to hear church bells. I wanted to hear church choirs. But I wanted the conversation to be about the hypocrisy of church, but in a comedic way. And I wrote it. And we put it out. And it was 19 weeks at number one in the dance hall. And I was back with the whole dance hall crew. Now, they didn't buy into me as a dance hall art as, as you know, but it opened the door to all my other stuff, you know, and it was so massive. So it's always calculated. When I was doing this record with Sting, Martin was like, should we go to Jamaica and do the record? And I was like, well, why don't you use my team in New York? We did it in New York. But it was like, yeah, but we need the authenticity of Jamaica and everything. I said, we have another way. Come do Shaggy and Friends. It's a win-win. It's the most publicized. You know about it. 
and we did it. It was a massive concert on the lawns of the Prime Minister's resident, 20,000 people, and we made a million U.S. for the hospital. We gave it in, and we did a great video in the streets of Kingston, and everybody loved them, and everybody loved the project, and here we are. Let's talk about your charity. Mm. I went down. You gave me the tour of the children's hospital. It's pretty remarkable, mm -hmm. and you have taken that as your pet project. Mm -hmm. Give us a little bit of insight into why, how, and, and where you are today. A friend of mine, Tony Kelly, who I'm doing my new album with now, he had a son by the name of Shane, and his son was sick. And I went to the hospital the night to visit this kid. And while I was waiting there, I had the opportunity to talk to the nurses and doctors. And they were telling me all the remarkable things that they were doing. You know, like, for instance, to prep for uh, surgery, to warm the blood. The blood is frozen. They put it in a pot with some water with a temperature, gazer, and, you know, warm it up until it was the right thing because they didn't have a machine called the blood warmer. And I realized they were doing things like that. And I said, if I made a vow to myself, if I was ever in the position to help them, I would. A couple of years afterwards, I made a hot shot. And I had a ton of money. And I just walked in there and cut them a check. And I kept cutting them a check for nine years. And we built roofs, bought beds, bought machines. Every machine, they gave me a needs list, and I tried to fill the need list. I built a park with my band for the parents of the patrons. And a gentleman touched me on my shoulder and says, Hey, Shag, can you come visit my daughter? She's hooked up to one of your machines. I'm like, all right, cool. Let me just finish with this ceremony here. They cut the ribbon and blah, 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 open the park. So I walked around, and there was this little girl that was hooked up to a machine that I bought. And she was about eight years old, and she was incoherent. And her eyes were just rolled over in her head. And she had a bullet stuck in her head. She was eight years old. And I felt incredibly useless, helpless. I held her hand, and I just got up and said, I got to do something else. I didn't know the first thing about putting a concert on. But I called a friend of mine, Sharon Burke, and she put me on to a brother by the name of William Mafood, who his family are the founders of Food for the Poor, which is the second largest international charity out of the U.S. and the sixth largest charity in the United States. But they're all Jamaicans. He says, Shaggy, the minute you start helping the poor, you'll never stop. And I believe him. So they taught me how to register a charity. and So you just can't give money like that. And they just kind of guided me through it. And we put the first concert on. And since then, we've done, I think, about eight or nine. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. That's great work. Talk a little bit about the low periods, mm -hmm. ups and downs. Up, you've got all this energy propelling you forward. Mm -hmm. When you're in the low period, how do you break through? How do you keep it going? How do you deliver then? People should never be scared of the low periods. Those are the best years. That's when you know who your circle is. When success is there, everybody is, is dandy. Everybody is around you. Everybody is supportive. When the wheels fall off, who's going to push the cart? Who's going to rock with you when the rewards aren't high? Who's going to tell you the truth? Those low years are what built the character of me to be a fighter to move forward. Because then you could not have accomplished anything else with the same team of people who are not believers in you. I was surrounded by a bunch of people that were just the wrong people for me. And it kept happening for years because I'm also one of those guys who's from the ghettos and 
I believe in chances and I believe in loyalty and I believe in friendship and I believe in all of that. At some point, you have to get up, look in the mirror, and practice one simple word. No. 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 Say it enough times and you'll get used to saying it. And at the opportune time, you will say, no. Because if you keep saying yes, just to please everybody, so that you're not the bad guy, everything falls. That's part of being a leader. What advice would you give the young Shaggy somewhere in Brooklyn, in the Marines, in Kingston, looking up to you? If you get up every morning and dream it, go hard for it. You'll never hear me say I am the most talented reggae artist or dancehall artist. I'm far from it. I hold my own. And I do my thing unique enough and I'm probably the most accomplished. But you could have 90% talent and 10% work ethic and no one will ever know you. And you could have 90% work ethic, 10% talent and be the biggest star in the world. That's what it boils down to. Get up on time great relationships. Mean what you say. That's a big one. I don't find a lot of that in this game of, of music, especially with artists. Mean what you say. If I shake your hand on something and somewhere down the line it changes, not in my favor, I'm still going through with it because I shook your hand on it. And I'll take the loss. That's integrity. Where did you learn that? Were you born with that or was that somebody's influence on you? I don't think it's an influence on me. I think that was from just the streets. Because I haven't met many people who've done that in my life. You've just come off this incredible success with Sting. Yeah. Grammys, tours, yeah. hits. So tell me about the new music. I kind of did a, a comeback. There's a, a young lady by the name of Tess Anchin, a great singer out of Jamaica. And I asked her if she would go on The Voice. And I got her to go on The Voice. And she won The Voice. She was the first Jamaican to do it. It was a big deal. And we did Shaggy and Friends. And I wanted to kind of be the guy behind her and manage. And But she had other plans. But it was the single thing that made me realize that I need to bet on myself. And so I went back to me. And I wrote a little song called I Need Your Love. I did a video and I put it out. And within a week, it was a million views. And in another week, it was another million. And after a while, a label approached me. And after a while, a young lady called Marnie came in. And the next minute, I was running around doing iHeart gigs. And I went to every station. And I went on every show. I didn't care what slot they put me on. And I, I did my thing. We got the song to top five at radio. But it put another energy in me. It says, hey, maybe I got something left here. And of course, I had an album to come out because now I put a record, I said, I'll do an album. And Sting came to me and says, well, I want to do a reggae record. Now this guy is Sting. He's an icon. You sure it's me you want to do a record with? Yes. I want a reggae record and you're the guy I want to do it with me. Shock me. If you want something to boost your self-esteem, let that guy talk to you. Because this guy is like, oh, people don't understand his genius. When I'm sitting in an interview and he's this 19-time Grammy, 150 million record sold, blah, 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 and sitting down there and says, hey, you don't understand the genius of this guy. What did you just call me? Yeah, the genius of this guy. What you do is genius. 
I play instruments, you don't play instruments, and you get these melodies and these words and these things going. But you take that for granted because there's people around you that weren't empowering you. And here's this guy that came into my life at the right time to empower me. And then I'm playing for Sting and I'm playing for this like, wow, this is, this is crazy. Because now I have a lot to let out. It's the first time I'm doing a more personal album. So this is an album that is the most personal I've ever gotten. What I'm doing on this record has a lot to do with what I've gone through with people and how disappointed I've been with people. People I thought, wow, I really didn't know you, did I? 30 years, 20 years. Yeah, that's what this record is about. Very personal. But I'm also a great pop writer. And I know how to structure a song. And I know how to make it catchy. And Sting says to me, the reason why you haven't been here on the level of what I've done or had the, the amount of success I have is because no one has ever really invested in you the same way. Because let's face it, Monday morning when you get in the record company and they said, hey, let's talk about Shaggy. And it says, okay, let's put $5 million behind this guy and blow him up. There's no track record of it ever being done before that. What executive is going to put their ass on the line and invest that kind of money in an act? who come from Jamaica, doing dance all. How are you going to market it when there's no format? Has it been done before? By the way, it's Jamaica. It's dance all, the music of homophobia, guns, violence, whatever stigma they give to it. So I have to maneuver my way through all of that. And they says, my God, the guy that we said should be on the banana boat singing, he's selling half a million records a week. That's where it comes from. That's where that drive comes from. Well, well-deserved. Thank you, sir. One final thing. Mm -hmm. This is math and magic. Who's the best mathematician you know? <laughs> it would have to be somebody that reinvents himself all the time. It would have to be somebody who has stood the test of time. It would have to be somebody who gets it and someone who still has the fire. You're looking at him. I love that. Who's the best magician? It's funny that you have this program named Math. And Magic. And Magic. Because I don't think one exists without the other. And I could only speak for myself. So I would put myself in that category too. You're Merlin. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, sir. Here's a couple of lessons I take away from Shaggy. Part of being a leader is learning to say no. When it comes to collaborations, Shaggy believes if it's not win-win, it's a bad idea. And don't be scared of the low periods. It's when you realize who's in your corner and where the opportunities truly are. Thanks again to Shaggy. His new solo album, Wagwan, is out now. Make sure you go check it out. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. 
Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts.